Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anne-Marie O'Dwyer chatting all things the psychiatry of cancer. I want to say that it's very common to be very distressed, to have a very prominent psychological response to cancer, that they are not alone, that lots of other people feel in that way, and that it's important for them to have information. Information is power, but it has to be the right information. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Just a heads up before we start today's podcast, you're about to hear the story from our guest who is a survivor of sexual and institutional abuse. It's not suitable for younger listeners and could be distressing for others. So please take care. Thanks. Today on the Indo-Daily, a year of sexual abuse settlements against the Spiritans Order. More than a dozen settlements have been made by the Spiritans congregation in the last year, after civil cases were filed in the High Court over alleged sexual abuse in its fee-paying schools. Several cases were brought after two former students of Blackrock College in Dublin went public in a radio documentary to detail the abuse they suffered at the hands of members of the Spiritans. I'm Fionan Chin, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Amy Malloy, social affairs correspondent with the Irish Independent, and Derek McCarthy, one of the survivors who has come forward to share his story. Emmy, we're hearing a lot about the Spiritans congregation. Who are the Spiritans and how would we better know of their work? The Spiritans are a congregation of the Catholic Church, which was founded around 300 years ago in France. They were formerly known as the Holy Ghost Order. They have members all across the world and have, I think, missionaries in 56 different countries at the moment. Uh, Now in Ireland, they would have uh, a large number of members also. And the Spiritans are also connected to a number of fee-paying schools in Ireland, including Blackrock College in Dublin and Rockwell College in Tipperary. The Spiritans are coming up a lot down in the High Court. Why is that? Yes, so there has been dozens of claims filed against the Spiritan Congregation in the High Court in the last 10 years. The congregation really came to prominence last November when two brothers, Mark and David Ryan, who attended Blackrock College in Dublin, went on the record in an RTE documentary to detail the heroin abuse that they suffered at Blackrock College during their time in the school back in the, the 70s. Unfortunately, sadly, since then, Mark Ryan actually passed away last month with a suspected heart attack. But I started looking into the high court cases just to see how many people are actually bringing claims against the Spiritans for abuse in their schools. The majority of these claims have actually been filed in the last year. I think, obviously, with Mark and David Ryan bravely telling their stories, it really led to the floodgates opening and many other people kind of came forward to tell their experiences. And now some are seeking to get compensation for for the abuse that they suffered in these schools. 
these cases, as you say, they're they're not just domestic. They've been taken by people out who are now based outside uh, of of Ireland, and a lawyer, Dr. Anne Oliverius, who has represented victims of sexual abuse uh, by the Catholic Church in the US and the UK, she's also involved here. What's what's her take on these cases? She has been involved in numerous cases against the Catholic Church. I think it doesn't stop at hundreds of cases, which unfortunately demonstrates how widespread this issue has been over the years. She recently registered to practice in Ireland as a lawyer and has been working with a firm based in Dublin to help victims take cases, primarily victims who she would have maybe met with in the US and the UK. And... I suppose she's glad to see that the Spiritans are kind of standing up and accepting that this happened and looking to to give victims compensation. But to her, the figures that are being offered here are a drop in the ocean compared to what she sees in the US. She doesn't think that 100 grand begins to cover the, the horrible experiences and abuse that these people suffered. She's spoken to many people who turned to drink and drugs. Some people ended up becoming prolific gamblers and obviously some people ended up with very kind of poor mental health because of what happened to them. So while she's glad to see that cases are being settled, she doesn't think that the money that's been offered is going far enough to kind of represent what victims went through in these schools. What are the Spiritans saying at the moment about cases being taken against them? They said they're looking at each case that comes to them individually and I think they are being very proactive in taking part in these settlement talks. Obviously, these processes do take time. So we kind of, from looking at the high court cases from the last year, it looks like at least a dozen of these cases have resulted in settlement so far this year. But when Mark and David Ryan came out and told their stories last year, the Spiritans came out and and revealed that since 2004, they had actually paid out 5 million euro in settlements to to victims. So since then, obviously, they, they've agreed more settlements with, with abuse survivors. So the, the figure is likely to run into more millions in the coming years, you would expect. And aside from um, the high court cases and cases being being settled outside of, of the high court, were these these matters are also being investigated on a more wider level. So what's the Gardaí's involvement? Obviously, not everyone who suffered abuse in these schools has taken legal action, but a number of people have actually contacted Gardaí about the abuse that they've suffered. There has been 230 allegations of abuse against 77 different spirit and members in the last number of years. We learned last month that Gardaí have actually referred 13 files to the Director of Public Prosecutions now for consideration and or their victims of sexual crime unit had been contacted by over 130 different people. Now, some of these were victims themselves, but they were also family members of those or who were affected or people who actually witnessed what happened. We've also learned that the government has set up a scoping inquiry to try and kind of get answers about how this was allowed to play out in, in Irish society. I know that some of the victims have already given interviews to the scope and inquiry now and I suppose the the end game with that is that there's going to be some recommendations coming out with a report about what are the next steps and, and how do we address to make up for this kind of shameful part of our history. I think a big part of the problem for a lot of survivors has been that their, their abusers are now dead. So some people who, who reported what happened to them to Gardaí when Gardaí subsequently investigated this they learned that these people were no longer alive so that kind of stopped them in terms of taking a criminal case. But some of these people are still alive. Some of them are in nursing homes. Some of them are, are still kind of alive and well. But it just remains to be seen whether any of these cases will result in prosecutions because a lot of them are very historic. 
Derek, can you tell me where are you originally from uh, in in Ireland and, and how was your childhood there? My story is a strange one. I'm one of eight kids. I am one of five that was born in the States, but I was gone within a month. My parents bought a house when they moved back to Ireland, bought a house in Clondalkin. I went to Moyle Park College. I went to the, I guess you'd say, low babies and high babies. I did that at the Immaculate Conception in Clondalkin, and then I went to Moyle Park. And um, I did most of my primary in, in Moyle Park. And then one Sunday evening, the phone rang and my mother got up and I, I remembered this distinctly. It was Father Halley. And she was like, how are you, Father Halley? Yes, let me get him now. And she said to my father, she's like, Jack, Father Halley's on the phone. And uh, my dad took the call and then he came back and he looked at me and he's like, Rockwell next Sunday. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was one of those things where I knew it was coming because you know, I was destined to go to Rockwell. My father went to Rockwell, my uncles, my brothers. It was just one of those things growing up where I knew when it hit a certain time I was going to Rockwell and off I went at 11 years old. <laughs> and how how did you get on there initially uh, in, in, the, in the opening couple of years? I did very well. I was playing rugby. I was uh, doing very well in my studies, you know, you know, Rockwell was, I guess, the epitome of higher education in, in Ireland back then. I was studying Spanish, French, Latin, doing subjects like commerce and, you know, all these all these good subjects. And we had access to horse riding. I was doing horse riding. I was also very successful in the choir. I was a, a solo uh, sopranoist. I was... I'd sung for the student body many times and I actually performed at the Cork Choral Festival in the choir and solo. So yeah, I was doing very well. My dad was, you know, as I said before in, in many interviews, he was definitely getting his money's worth back then. So you, you were there as a, as a boarder, obviously staying in the college itself. At what point did, did events take a, a bad turn for you in the school? Uh, one night. I was uh, in study hall and a prefect, you know, back then <clears throat> prefects were fifth years and sixth years. I was only in second year. Uh, it was my, it was actually my second year in, in Rockwell. I had to repeat second year because um, I was so young going in. They felt I was too young to continue. I went there 11 in July. So I would have been there in October. I was just 11. Um, so they felt that I, I, I needed to repeat. So it was in the second year that I was called out of study hall and one of the priests, uh, started to fondle me and made me fondle him. And, uh, that was the first experience I had with, uh, child sexual abuse. Can you describe for us the the, the the traumatic situations you were put in and, and the abuse that, that you experienced? There was violence. I mean, that was the very first thing. The priests were violent. There was two of them. There was one priest in particular. He was extremely violent with me. Um, he, as I went on into third year, we stayed at St. Joe's. That's the lake house down 
down from the main um, part of the school. Uh, it happened, you know, I'm talking over 50 times, uh, where he would get extremely violent and break me down and then, you know, had almost free reign to do whatever he wanted with me as regards um, to the point of, of, of rape and ejaculation and oral sex. He would first take a drumstick and, and you know, use it on me and beat me and, you know, get me to the point where submission, you know, when you, when you get broken down, you're so young and you get broken down so violent, violently, it, it, it gives him free reign over whatever he wanted to do to me. And, you know, it was a regular occurrence. And this was the man that I went to in total confidence to to seek help from, from, you know, shelter or, or respite from the abuse that I was receiving from the other three individuals. You actually confided in this priest in in the hope that that he would help you yes yeah and can you tell can you tell me how you 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 went about doing that and and then how exactly he 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 turned on you instead of helping you i remember it vividly he had an office and under the stairs uh it was a small little office tiny wee thing almost closet size uh right by the library at the end of the main hall we called it the long haul. One day I went to him and I, I, I told him what was going on. And um, the first time that he abused me later on that week at uh, St. Joe's. Um, and he had been beating me for a while. He was one of those guys where he would... Uh, manipulate you into submission whether it be in front of people or whether it be in the office you know when you when you knew you were getting called up to his office down at St. Joe's you knew you were in for it one of those particular nights that's when he turned and he beat me so bad with the drumstick he he pulled my pants down to my ankles and beat me so bad with the drumstick that I ended up on the floor and wh- what impact was was all of this having on you as a as a young child? Oh, it, it it affected my studies in Rockwell. There was a numbered system: seven being the best you could get for the week, three being the worst. I was constantly getting threes. It's funny how I remember all this stuff. I mean, it's as vivid as as if it happened yesterday. You know, I'd go home. I would never want to go back. Um, in Kondok and I threw myself in front of a car in the hope that I would get hurt so I, I didn't have to go back. Of course, it didn't work and really that wasn't the answer back then, you know, but I was so young, I was so desperate not to go back. Uh, and eventually, you know, one night I, I had enough. I remember telling the lad, and, and I, I cannot remember this, this, this lad's name, the only thing I remember him was he was he was his father was Irish, his mother was from Belgium, and he lived in Belgium and he was an Andalect fan and he gave me his Andalect scarf that night. I told him I was leaving that night and I just walked out the gates and made my way to Nace. Uh how <laughs> a twelve, thirteen year old kid at that time, how I did it I don't know, but I hitchhiked. I hitchhiked to Cashel 
Then I ended up in Erlingford, I think Port Leash, and then up, up to Nace. And I got to Nace very late, called my dad from Nace. He sent me across the street to Lawler's Hotel. He knew Lawler's Hotel. He had done business with them. He knew the owner. And uh, they put me up for the night. And then the next the next morning, he came down and picked me up. And that's when he drove me home to my mother's house. And that's when I told them what was going on. When you told your parents about what was happening, what, what was their what was their reaction? Oh, my father was heartbroken. You know, he was very proud of his heritage with Rocco. He was very proud of the fact that he could send five of his sons to, quote-unquote, the best school in Ireland. But there was something about Rockwell that put it on an edge above everybody else. You know, past presidents of Ireland, Taoiseachs, you know, former Irish international rugby players, you know, many famous people went to Rockwell. And they came from all over the world. You know, I had friends from from Maiduguri in Nigeria, from Malaysia, from from Belgium, Italy, France. I mean, all over the world, the United States, California, New York. Rockwell was, a, was you know, up there as regards schools. It, it was considered almost to be like higher education. <laughs> uh, so he loved Rockwell and he had this great proudness of Rockwell. And when this happened, it deflated him. It, it truly, truly deflated him uh, to the point where we never spoke about it, ever. After I talked to him about it, it was never brought up again. I never talked to him about it. Knowing my dad, there'd be, there'd be sorrow also in my dad because, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing for us. And at that time, he was, you know, he was sending us to the best school of Ireland. He, he didn't have a crystal ball. He didn't know what was going to happen to me. He was... Heartbroken. He truly was heartbroken because rock was his thing. The rest is history. You know, I never seen Rockwell again after that. I didn't, I never went back. I think I passed it once when I, I think I was going down to Cork for a match or something like that after I went to school in Dublin. I remember just passing it. But that was it until uh, 2000. On 2018, before the pandemic, when I was there with my girlfriend, she's now my wife, and you know, I went went into Rockwell and not premeditating this. We were down with friends in Kilkenny, and we were giving each other a break. You know, when you're with a couple, you know, two couples, you want a break from each other just to go do your own thing. And I, we, I said to Mel, I said. Uh, Come on, let me take her to the Rock of Cashel. And I brought her down to the Rock of Cashel. She's American. So she's, just, she's always in awe of, you know, the old history in Ireland, you know, castles and whatnot. And we were down at the Rock and we were walking around Cashel. I remember bringing her to the Cashel Palace Hotel, which was under construction. And I tried to get in, but there was a big fence around it. And I said to her, Come on, I'll take you down to Rockwell. As soon as I went in, I signed in as a, as a former um, past pupil. And then we just started to walk around the place. And then when I got up to the study halls and the classrooms on the second floor, everything came back to me. And, and you know, Rockwell has changed. The inside of Rockwell has changed. It's painted different. It's, it looks like a university. You know, it looks like a frat house now inside compared to what it was when I was there. It was very, you know, traditional and very proud of its history when I was there. It's, uh, that's all. That, it, it's all changed now. 
And I was just amazed at the colors and how things had changed. And I wanted to see as much as I could. But when I did that, everything came back to me. It was like I was reliving it. Just in that two, three hours that I was in Rockwell, I I relived the whole thing. And it it came so real back into me. I was numb. By the time I got back to Kilkenny, I was so numb. I was in tears that night with with my wife and my two friends. And they're, they're psychologists at Trinity College. One is the dean of psychology, and the other one's a very famous, uh, well-known psychologist, Barbara Hannigan. Uh, she's, she's a woman I grew up with, a very close friend of mine. And they, they were numb also because everything just poured out that, that we were sitting across. We were sitting at a restaurant across from Kilkenny Castle. And it just came out. And then I came back to the States. I've coached football for the last 15, 16 years over here. And I had been going through a divorce before I met Mel. And I knew that one of my, uh, one of my uh, players, I knew that his father was an attorney. And I went up to him prior to all of this. And I'd asked him, was he the divorce attorney? And he said, no, Derek, I'm actually an attorney that sues the Catholic Church for child abuse. <laughs> and I walked away. But a couple of days later or that night or whenever, he called me up. And he's like, Derek, I know you're, you're a survivor. I said, how do you know that? And he's like, I just tell by your body language. He said, I've been doing this long enough. I could just tell by your body language that something wasn't right with you when I told you what I did. And uh, he had talked to me. He had advised me to watch a couple of movies or, you know, go back and talk to him and stuff. And I, I, I just kind of brushed it off. I, I really wasn't in the frame of mind to take anybody on. but. After I got back, I called him up and I said, okay, I'm ready to do this because, again, you know, that trip and that, that my time in Rockwell, it just brought it back so fresh in my mind that I vomited all of this up and it wasn't going back down. It, was, it had come out and it was here to stay. And I, I, I guess I was just ready to face it. And in turn, I went and talked to him and he put me in touch with uh, some people, McAllister Oliveris, they're an American law firm in England. They practice in, in England. They're both on the, on the bar in England. They took my case on after listening to my story for a couple of months. Uh, they assigned a lead, lead investigator and a couple of junior attorneys to my case. And so they teamed up with Pierce Megan, who's out of Dunleary. Um, and the three of them combined, uh, took my case on and, and, you know, I had success this past July, July 20th at the four courts in, in Dublin and, um, the church settled. And when I, when I talk about settled, you know, it's, it's pittance to be honest with you, because what they did to my life, what they did to my education, what they did to the fact that, you know, I left my, my homeland and my family and my friends and my entire life at the age of 18. I ran out of there. I had to get out uh, because I guess it was a survival mechanism for me because uh, that was the only way I knew how to survive was to, was to leave Ireland and reinvent myself um, in, in America, which I did. I struggled most of my life. Uh, not being educated and, you know, taking menial jobs, having to work three, four jobs to provide for my family because I wasn't educated. 
uh, lie about my life. And, you know, as I got older, I was like, you know, uh, nobody's ever going to know if I say I have a degree from, from Ireland <laughs> on my resume. <laughs> so that's basically what I did. It was I basically lied about my life to get some type of success to bring my daughters up in a stable family middle-class environment um, all because I lied, you know. Uh, and it's a struggle when you have to lie about your life because you know you're lying about your life. You know deep inside why you're lying about your life and, and, and um, what has happened to your life. So, yeah, for, for 30, 40 years, I buried it so deep that I convinced myself that I was somebody else. So I lived a lie. <laughs> but it was... It worked for me, you know. It, it truly worked for me. And have you received uh, professional help, therapy? Seen any professionals in in that space to talk through these issues? No, I never have. Um, again, I never really talked about it. You know, there was a few people at home in Ireland that knew about it, um, and it was when when I say knew about it, they knew something happened, but I never really never really discussed it with anybody you know i was in the united states air force that's why i left ireland i joined the united states air force in england uh while i was in my leaving search i went to school in crumlin after rockwell a place called colossi quivin on on the canal close to harold's cross during the leaving year um i lived in, we moved to balls bridge after clondalkin and um my father ran his own business uh in dublin I lived on Elgin Road, which is right down the street from the, the U.S. Embassy. Um, I would see the, the Marines when they were off duty. They would throw the American football up and down the street. I'd, 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 I'd play with them. And I'd throw it rugby style and they'd throw it American football style. And We got to talking. And then one day, just out of the blue, one day I was passing the American Embassy and I walked in and I showed them my U.S. passport because I never lived in Ireland as, a, as an Irish citizen. I always lived in Ireland as a, as a, a U.S. citizen. Um, I went on all sorts of school trips with Rockwell, even a couple of trips with Moyle Park when I was that young. And I, I needed a passport. And my father said, no, don't get an Irish passport, get a U.S. passport. So I got the U.S. passport. Um I went in one day and I asked for uh, information on, on the armed forces and the first people to get back to me were the United States Air Force. They were based out of uh, RAF Milden Hall in, in just above Cambridge. And I went over, did the, me- the, the test and I did the medical and stuff. And, you know, when I was doing the leave and I didn't care, I'd go in and sign my name and walk right out. Um, so I, I, I basically got NG on my leaving certificate because I knew I, I'd already signed up for the United States Air Force. I went in on a program called the Delayed Enlistment Program. Two or three weeks after the leaving was done, I was gone. I was in Texas in basic training and I, I did four and a half years in the Air Force. So that was good for me because it was structured. It was kind of used to, I was used to that kind of environment being uh, in Rockwell, you know, being regimented, living a regimented type of life so I did very well in the US Air Force I did four and a half years I got out then became a civilian I'd never lived in the States as a civilian so it was like starting all over again for me Uh, it was difficult at times 
what advice would you give now to to somebody who is a survivor but has has never come forward or never never spoken to people uh, about th- their abuse and their experience? I'm a changed person since I came out because it changes your life. It, it empowers you. It gives you a strength like you've never had before. And I have a strength like I've never had before. I mean, I show I show empathy and kindness to my fellow human beings. I'm not one you know, who's into violence or into, into, into politics or even religion or any of that stuff. Um, I like to be happy and I like to give happiness to other people. It's just changed me. My career has just completely turned around. I had mediocre jobs and now, you know, I'm, I'm a director of, of a department who runs, I run four buildings throughout the United States, one on the East Coast, one on the West, and two in the central part of the States. This is a job that, you know, took me 40 years to get, you know, and I'm working with people that are way younger than me. I I work with people that are like late to mid 40s, and I'm 58 years old. And I say to myself, this is where I should have been 25 years ago. But I'm there now. You know, and I'm not being pretentious about that. I'm just saying, you know, this whole thing stunted my growth as a professional and as a human being. I think I've become a, a better father. Not that I was a bad father. I adore my daughters. But I've become a more relaxed father, giving advice and, and giving guidance. I have a daughter who's 28 and another one who's 24. And they've even commented on the changes in me. I think I need to pay back and give back. Uh, because I had a lot of help with good close friends and good good legal teams and you know my support bases here in Ireland and and uh, here in the US and at home in Ireland and I do want to say this um, Ross Thompson he is the president for this year of Rockwell's Past Pupils Union the support that Rockwell's Past Pupils Union have given me has been nothing but amazing that you know i was shocked when i was contacted you know because my my case has gotten so much media attention and i think i'm going to continue to do non-stop interviews because i think it will help other people i'm not doing it for my notoriety you know you look at david ryan and mark ryan they were doing good work and i want to kind of like help out and do what i can it's about giving back to to other victims and other survivors it's not about me anymore i've 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 won my case i'm carrying on with my life as i said you know we settled but the the the, the settlement was pittance you know it's nothing compared to what they did to my life and what they did to so many people's lives i mean it's like a meat market when you when you're in the four courts. You don't even get to see these people. You don't get to talk to them. You don't get an apology. You don't get an explanation of what they did to you and why they did this to you. That that's the thing that really disgusts me and gives me sometimes anger. It's like, you know, here you go. Here's a bit of money. Now go away. <laughs> I'm not going away because I need to be here for the voice and I need to continue this and. Uh, you know, as many people as I can encourage to come out. Um, you know, some some have. There's a few in Dublin that have contacted me. Sexual abuse is alive and well. You know that. It's it's one in four, and that's throughout the world. One in four has been abused, whether it's from teachers, relations, you know, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, fathers, 
if I can save one child or if I can bring a few victims out that are in the same situation as me, my age, or whether they're male or female, and I can help somebody or stop it from happening to another child, I will. I'll do what I have to do to, to, to protect and help and give back. Because, you know, I was alone in the world. Yeah, I talk about it every now and then, but I was alone for over 40 years with this where I couldn't talk about it. I buried it so deep where I convinced myself that it never happened. And that's living a lie also, just like, you know, the other part of the, the page, I was living a lie about who I was and what I was. But when you can't talk about it or bring it out, that's, that's a hard road to travel. And my thanks to Derek McCarthy and Amy Malloy. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Gareth Mulhall, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by John Smith. If you have been affected by this podcast, you can get a list of helplines by searching Someone to Talk To on the Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. 